Hi, hello, bonjour, and namaste. This is Out of the Clouds, a podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I'm your host, Anne Mulitalo. Hey, friend. So, I have a major treat for you today a glorious interview with a wonderful yoga teacher, a wonderful woman called Annie Carpenter. Annie is well known in yoga circles for being a teacher's teacher, aka, she's a master. She's the kind of person that you seek out when you want to better yourself, get to the next stage in your practice. Annie's been practicing yoga since the 70s. Before that, she was a dancer and a teacher with Martha Graham in New York. More recently, Annie created her own yoga school called Smartflow Yoga. Now, I discovered her after completing my own yoga teacher training because the teacher I'd been studying with recommended that we students go out and study other teaching styles and other yoga styles. And she recommended Annie, and that's how I landed on Glow, Glow.com, an online yoga platform that Annie's been teaching on for a number of years. And so after following her from a distance, I jumped the gun and first joined her live classes on Zoom because my evenings are a good fit with her mornings, given that I'm in Geneva and she's in Oakland, California. And later on, thanks to the wonderful Eva at Yoga Kula in Vienna, I also studied in person with Annie. So it's been a real pleasure and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to ask Annie many questions about her life and career from dance to yoga to somatic movement to to working on glow and zoom and even leading her down the path of talking about yoga philosophy and turning one question that she asked me and other students in our assignment last year turning the tables and asking her who is Annie I'm excited to bring you such a joyful, profound, and inspiring interview. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Annie Carpenter. Enjoy. Annie, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Out of the Clouds. My pleasure. So good to see you again. Oh, same here. Be with you again. <laughs> so where am I finding you today and, and how are things where you are? Yeah, I'm at home in Oakland, California, which is, you know, across the bay from San Francisco, if those of you who don't know. And it is chilly and bright and sunny. And it's interesting that I think a lot of us think California doesn't have seasons, but it, here in Northern California, and especially by the bay, by the ocean, we actually do have seasons, not like Geneva, perhaps. <laughs> There's very little snow, if any, but it, the leaves fall and, and there are bare trees, which reveal the cedar wax wings. And it is cold and I've got a wool sweater on and all of that. You're right, actually. I think that most of us from outside of the US in particular, we tend to think of California as the whole of California to be like San Diego. Or Los Angeles, yes. Lots of cars and lots of yeah. sun. <laughs> and occasionally a surf beach, right? That's uh... <laughs> Right. So as you may already know, I like to start the podcast by asking my guests to share their story very freely. Because I like to talk about who we are a little bit more in depth before we talk about what we do. So I know it's a big thing. It's a big question. But Annie, would you tell me your story? 
Wow. Yeah. I began in Virginia in a smallish town. And Virginia at that time in the 50s was quite conservative and old school, very Southern. We identified as Southern and all of the, including the negative things that that implies of the American South, frankly, was part of my upbringing. And I'm still unwinding from some of that stuff. All the ism, sexism, (laughs) ageism, racism, all the things were were unconscious to me as a child, certainly, but um, so clear. And, And I do, I feel like I'm still unwinding from some of that stuff, even today, all these years later. Having said that, it was, you know, safe and calm and quiet from the outside. (laughs) And there were some mental health issues in my family with my mother. And I think I'm still unwinding from that stuff, too. And I think all of that serves to to say, and that's why I needed to leave at 17 Um. and never went back. (laughs) (laughs) And I did go to New York straight away. I was in love with dance and I did have this image. The first time I really left town and got to go to a city was D.C. And my local dance teacher took a few of us up to see the Martha Graham Dance Company at Lincoln Center. No, not Lincoln Center, at Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., and I, it really did feel like, I know this is a weird word, but it really did feel like deja vu. I felt like I knew it. Never seen it. I mean, I'd read the biography about her and all the things, but it really just moved me and touched me. And I'd never seen anyone move with that kind of depth and clarity, wherein the movement told the story. Whereas if you go to classical ballet and many other forms, it's the same basic movements just put together with different costumes and different music, but Mm. the movements are the same, just reorganized. Whereas with Martha, the movement creates the emotion both in the dancer and viscerally, I think it's felt to the audience as well. Obviously, more or less, depending upon your sensitivity, your empathy to the human body moving, the shift of breath, all those things. But it was something I think I had always felt sort of sanctuary inward Because a little bit of a crazy home, that was my way, was to go inside and feel all the stuff inside of me. And so I think that's why this theater, and it was theater, wasn't people telling their own lives, but that's why it spoke to me because it was so true, authentic. And I knew somehow, I don't think I could have said this at the time, that if I learned that and could be with that, that there would be some kind of inner knowing and inner honesty that would evolve in my life. Oh, that is so amazing. Yeah, Graham is amazing. Again, it's very historical. If you look at it today, someone, if you had never seen the Graham Company and you saw one of her, even Appalachian Spring, which is one of the classics, for example, you would go, yeah, well, that's old school. <laughs> but as a mover and as a young mover, trying to find out what really mattered in life, it was a huge shift. It was, uh, it was hope <laughs> in a very clear way. It's like, this is it. This is my way to understanding, to inward freedom and purpose. Wow. All three huge things in anyone's life wrapped up into one. That's what it felt like. I mean, did it actually give me all of those things in terms of day in and day out? Of course not. But did it give me direction and have, did I have a sense of what I wanted to create in my life or have in my life? A hundred percent. 
Does, does that make sense, the difference? Of course. It sets you on the path. Yes, set me on the path. Yeah. And so what happened next? <laughs> you know, long story, I ended up having to go to college just because that's what one did in those days. So I left New York to San Francisco, came back, you know, pretty much as soon as I could and did apprentice at the, got the scholarship, apprenticed at the Martha Graham Center, eventually did work for the junior company and briefly for the main company and taught at the school for years, all those things. And two things came out of that. And maybe the most important in terms of who I am today was I'm really an introvert and all that stuff was exhausting being around all those people. And (laughs) I didn't know why I was exhausted. (laughs) Um, But anyway, that's what led me to the yoga studio, which was near my home downtown. And so whenever I could at the end of the day, you know, if there wasn't a performance or whatever, I would head home, get off the subway, go to the yoga studio and be with my people where I felt safe and, you know, true sanctuary kind of thing. So it really was a sort of refuge for me. And as much as I loved dancing and loved, you know, what time I did have with Martha and the school and all the things, it really wasn't the life for me. <laughs> it was exhausting. Yeah. And, and I'm not competitive and I'm not, you know, all the things that it really takes to be a dancer at that level. Just mm-hmm. it was hard for me. But then somehow they saw me, the, the director of the school saw that I could teach. And I think I was the youngest teacher ever hired. I was in my young 20s at the Graham Center. And it was so clear how easy and right teaching was for me, as opposed to, you know, I think I was a talented dancer and performer, but it wasn't easy. I was exhausted. Sure. Yeah. So that shift happened. And then it just kept going. You know, I did perform for years. I kept teaching. Eventually, I tried teaching at university. Hmm, that didn't go well. <laughs> just the grading people on art, all the bureaucracy. Yeah, no good. So I did that for a little while. And I did learn how to create a curriculum. And I do. Ah. Right. And that's why I think I have a school that is well organized and, you know, really oh. user friendly. But yeah, eventually the yoga won out. And (laughs) I mean, I kept doing yoga on the side all the time. And then it was just so clear that yoga was my path. Off to LA to do a teacher training and with Mati Azrati and uh, Lisa Walford at Yoga Works. And Mati says, oh, you should stay. And I said, what, quit my job? Leave my husband? (laughs) She says, well, whatever you want. (laughs) And that's what I did. (laughs) I was in 90. Oh my God, that's amazing. And that's, that was mid-90s, and I moved to L.A. I, I mean, the marriage was breaking up anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, taught at Yoga Works there for 13 years. And then moved to another studio not far in Venice and taught there for a number of years. And then Sam and I moved up here. And I still teach, obviously. Up um, a, a little studio here and, of course, travel around a lot. Mm. That's the story. I have so many more questions than I had planned to to ask. (laughs) I would first like for you to tell us a little bit about the the first yoga experiences you had in that studio in New York. What was it called again? Because I've heard the name. Integral Yoga. Integral Yoga. And to talk a little bit about the teachers and the kind of yoga that you first practiced. Mm. Mm. Well, actually, my very first experience was when I was a teenager. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this story before when I uh, had a little bit of a, Mm. well, let's just say I was smoking too much pot. 
And uh, <laughs> I did hear it. <laughs> my parents sent me to this. It not a, in you know I didn't live there, but after school every day I would go to this program. Anyway, and what we did is we did pottery and we had group therapy and I had my own little therapist and we did yoga on Thursdays. And my very first yoga class, I didn't know anything about yoga. And, you know, the movement was so easy for me because I was dancing. It was just like, whatever, you know, the asana. But then he guided us into Shavasana and it was truly, it was the first time I was able to drop into a deep and sweet feeling of utter relaxation where I felt safe and there wasn't that sort of vigilante, oh my God, what's going to drop next? Completely gone. And yeah, it was the Shavasana turned me on to yoga. I would have never expected that. <laughs> but it's fascinating because it's true of my story as well. And mm. by the time that I discovered it, I discovered yoga via a video by Ali McGraw, the actress <laughs> from Love Story. And her teacher was Eric Schiffman. Eric Schiffman. And yeah. I actually went back. The recording is on YouTube for free. And I listened to his Shavasana again because I, I did a speech about it not long ago. And he was very, mm. he was very directive in his Shavasana. And he was like, do this, let go, do that. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> and it just worked. And I heard mm. that Sally Kempton, her experience, she's a famous meditation teacher for people who may not know her. I know Sally. Yeah. And, and it was the same for her. So it's fascinating that Shavasana is what drew us in. That is fascinating. And maybe that speaks to the world we live in where we're yeah. all just so busy and, and driven to do, to do, to do. I mean, I certainly needed the movement practice and that's what I focused on for the following 15 years. But, <laughs> but it's what got me into it in the first place. And I think there's, there's something to that. But anyway, I interrupted you. So, that was your first experience of yoga. And then and then when you got to New York, tell me about integral yoga. Integral yoga. Yeah. So this is Swami Satchidananda's school. And his is the school, the little logo says, path are many, truth is one. And I just love that because A, it's inclusive, you know, in the most important ways. But it really invited me to find, if you will, the yoga in all the things I was doing. And I think in a word, it helped me sort of prioritize or sense what I really loved, what was worth it, what wasn't worth it. My word this year, since I turned 65, is what I was willing to retire. <laughs> Not me, but the, st the practices in my life that I'm like, okay, I'm done with that. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> right? So I, I think it gave me permission to choose what was my truth and to look for that. Again, I'm not sure I could have said it in those words back then, but I do think that's what his intention is and was at that time, certainly. And he was inspiring. This is another thing that has come up a few times in my life. He would give chat at the Riverside Church way on the Upper West Side. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's this huge church, beautiful, gothic, very European, you know, kind of big, open, high, high space. And a thousand people could go in there. And it was really cool to see a yoga master speak in that sort of setting. But what was wonderful for him is that he could, in one minute, be so deep and quiet and true. And then he'd tell a big joke. And then <laughs> back. And he was, in a word, a, a really interesting mix of what today we might call pitta and vata, 
the sort of pitta, very focused mind. Oh, yeah. And then the vata, well, blah, 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 you know, which of course is me. And I think I've always thought of wise people as being more kapha, more slow, more grounded, more steady, not big excitement and back down, you know, just steady. And so I always felt that I could never be that person. <laughs> you know, that I would always be the one flitting around. I'd be the little sparrows and not the <laughs> hawk. <laughs> you know? So that was a, a lovely, lovely learning. And, and I've had to learn that numerous times that just because your energy doesn't look like what you imagine the great teachers should be or the wise people are like, you know, we all have to do it our own way. Um, but but it's lovely to also see someone who is able to model something closer to you, right? Yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah, that was how I saw the possibility of me becoming deeper, wiser, you know, and more useful in the world, more helpful. And so how did, when did you hear about Mati Ezrati and, and start working with her? So for our listeners who are not, Yoga aficionados who know much about the yoga teaching world. Mati is a very famous teacher who some of my favorite teachers have um, studied with her at some point in their lives. And I'd love to hear about her. She sounded amazing. Yeah, Mati, and in case you don't know, Mati was a great teacher. She yeah. left the planet, gosh, it's four years ago. I heard. At least four years ago, maybe in five. Actually, I didn't hear about her. I heard about her partner, Chuck, ah. a friend of mine in New York that we did yoga together. She did a retreat with him, I think in Mexico, so many moons ago. And she says, Annie, you need to study with Chuck. You're going to love Chuck. <laughs> But Chuck was not leading the training. So I still had never heard of Mati. Chuck was not leading the training at that point. He popped in for, I think, a little philosophy chat at one point that summer. So, but I went there anyway. And... The two of them were both teaching Ashtanga, which had become my practice. The time that fit for me was not 6.30 in the morning when Chuck ta taught, because I like to sleep in, frankly. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> But Mati was teaching at four, and she was leading the training with Lisa, so Mati became my teacher kind of conveniently. I love that. She was an extraordinary being, quite a force, uh, a remarkable force, and a little bit younger than me. I think she's probably eight, ten years younger than me which was kind of interesting to have a younger teacher. What can I say about Mati? She had a way of inspiring people like great teachers do, like Martha did, maybe not quite that level, but being around them uplifts you. And whether, I, I think with some teachers like Mati, I think part of that was out of fear of disappointing her. And that was certainly true to some degree with Martha You know, I'm thinking of all the great teachers that I've had over the years, including a couple of great therapists that I've worked with, literally great, great therapists over the years. And it's interesting for me because I've thought a lot about what is inspiration with a student? How do I create inspiration? And it, one can do that via fear. Become better for me. I expect that of you. But I think one can also do that by ongoing self-evolving. Is that a word? Yeah. <laughs> By continuing to learn, to change, to grow oneself. And I don't think we expect that. 
I mean, I so often I've had students who worked with me 15 years ago, and then they pop into a workshop, and they're always surprised at how much I've changed and my teaching has shifted. Not that I've turned against something I necessarily believed in years ago, but then I want to keep learning. <laughs> and I will, <laughs> and I do. And Mati did that too. And in my time with her, she was my primary teacher for probably only about eight or 10 years, but we were dear friends also. And over those years, I watched her soften. And, and just as I have learned and I'm learning still to do is to let the expectation come from within the student as opposed to from the teacher herself. Huge learning, huge, difficult, how to continue to excite, charge, awaken the student's energy, mind, actions without it being what I want. And rather, can it be what the student in that moment is seeking? Huge shift. And I think one of the hardest things as a teacher trainer to share that idea and an essential shift. I don't think we can become a teacher and, and understand that in the beginning. I think it's over time and, and seeing how there are some students that we intimidate, not intentionally, but it just happens. And then other students that maybe we do inspire with that methodology, but it's not the methodology that I believe good learning takes place within. Sorry, I went off. I watched Mati shift. Sure. <laughs> That's what that was all about. That's fascinating. Yeah, I feel like I expected this a little bit more, but I think it's mm. because I had high expectations from my teachers and I have no patience for someone who doesn't deliver what I need. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that should be true of students who like or don't like to come with me. We should feel very free to move when we need to move on to someone who gives us what we need. Uh, but I feel like I've Absolutely. had a, a really good nose to follow really good teachers, which is how I landed with you on Zoom. <laughs> Thank you. And so perhaps one of the things we could talk about then that, that segues quite naturally here is how did you come to develop your own style of yoga and your own curriculum? Hmm. You know, I never intended, <laughs> I never intended to have my own school or, or methodology. I was quite happy in my young teaching years and mi middle teaching years, we could even say. When Mati left Yoga Works, basically I took over her role as teacher trainer. And the first few years, it was me and Lisa Wofford, which was such a, an honor and thrill. And then I did uh, more and more of that. And two things happened. I frankly didn't feel appreciated by <laughs> the management team in all the ways. And as I kept teaching the same thing over and over, and here's what happened, Anne, is that it used to be that we, we were only letting in people who had a fair amount of experience in yoga in their own practice. And then in an effort to bring more and more people, aka more and more money, in Almost beginners, you know, people with a lot less experience would show up, what I would consider beginners. And by a beginner, I don't mean, you know, you may have been practicing for 10 years, but you did it once a week. That's very different from a yogi who practices six, seven days a week, even for two years. In a word, I'd rather have that person join a training than the one, oh, I've been practicing for 10, 12 years every week. 
Hmm. You know, talk to me next year when you've put in more. Anyway, so I had to, in a word, dumb down the training. I, I couldn't go as in-depth. And if you can't go in-depth, what I have found with, I, I think, many things that one is trying to teach, if you can't get in-depth, then you don't, there's no system. There can be no methodology. I, maybe I'm wrong about other things, but what I was finding is I just had to teach these people where to put their feet and, and to bend the knee on the exhale, as opposed to a system that described the actions and counteractions that balance the body and that engages the mind that created that quality of awake, mindful attention. And, you know, yes, mind the front foot with the back heel. Those are essential things. You got to learn them. But it's not a system. It's not a methodology that you can apply to multiple poses and to a way of living our A hundred percent, because it's, uh, it's totally true of the body. And it's also, metaphorically speaking, something you can carry in your mental or spiritual life. Absolutely. Or relationship. Absolutely. All of it. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> mm. It's very interesting. So as that started to happen, when I got frustrated with the system as well as the management team, I moved up the street, you know, this wonderful studio called Exhale, which is where Schiffman was, by the way, <laughs> and other fabulous uh-huh. teachers. And... I said, you know, and I'd like to lead trainings as well as have my classes. And they said, great. And, and at that time, Yoga Alliance was just getting really, you know, put together. And so I had to name the school and trademark the school and do all the things, which didn't really interest me and frankly felt like a pain. And you know what? But, you know, that's what we did. (laughs) Yeah, but it's worth it because I guess it's, Sometimes you need to have a clear structure externally as well as internally, right? In what you were trying to put together. Absolutely. And, and I think it actually insisted that I quickly outline the things that really did matter to me and that were in made some sharp and some mild contrast to the system in which I had been teaching. So it, it was good for me. It said yes to this and no to that <laughs> in very clear ways. And I think I actually, when I was writing that first manual, I think I actually surprised myself as I dug in and hung with it to get everything clear that there were some ideas that were more evolved than I realized. (laughs) I love that. Writing it down, right? (laughs) I love, I love that. Writing or journaling, yeah, there's nothing like writing it down. And suddenly you're like, what? What? So, would you explain to our listeners what? Our movement principles in smart flow yoga. Yeah. So what I started to see was that many poses, and I did start from the physical practice, had a familial <laughs> connection in, and not in that they were all standing poses or that they were all inverted poses, because that to me doesn't actually work. But rather that all of these poses had a way of, for example, rotating a hip relative to the pelvis and spine. And whether it was an inverted pose or a seated pose or standing pose, uh, we were looking for the primary actions that defined each of those poses. And that, that became the family, the movement principle 
had a series of poses that might have different orientations, but had primary actions. So that's the sort of categorization. But the main thing about a movement principle is that it teaches a a continuum of movement and also a continuum of intention. And on one end of that continuum, it is the direction in which you are headed, very intentionally and full of attention. And in the other end of that continuum is part of you that says, wait, maybe not. Maybe that's too much. Maybe I need to, you know, it's like you're taking a long walk. I got to go home now. (laughs) Right. So there's the yes end and the Uh no end. And somewhere in the middle is what we call the crux. The crux of a continuum is that most subtle of places where the two ends have an intimate relationship, frankly. And, and that is meant to be on the physical level. And in that way, each of us finds how deeply we should go or not. And it's so a pose is not defined by this is what it looks like, but the balance of that, what I call the effort in one direction and the returning to center in the opposite direction. So it's all a balancing act. It's all a balancing act. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that you explained that because I guess that so those of us, those listening to us who have taken yoga classes and who've enjoyed them likely have found a teacher who understands and knows how to sequence and put these things together in a way that the student just experiences release, effort, strengthening, if that's what they're looking for, stretching, if that's what they want, without noticing necessarily the cog that make this a well-oiled machine. And I personally find it really inspiring to see how much you can deliver for yourself on yoga mat when the person on the other side, the person guiding you has put so much thought and effort as you have and as you do and as all of those who've who've been taught under you understand about how to guide us to be in that crux, right? That place between one end and the other. And there are days when my intention takes me further and days where I need to stay closer to the home base. <laughs> Precisely, Anne. That, that, is, that is the point, is that each day it's okay if it's a different place. Mm-hmm. Each decade is definitely going to be a different place on that continuum, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and that all of that is fine. And in fact, it is the point. Mm-hmm. It is you going in, each one of us going in and finding what's right. What's the truth? Let's say that differently. Not what's right, but what's the truth rather than what is that idea of right. I appreciate that you make that difference because in I guided a meditation practice yesterday morning and at the end we had a, a chat with my students and this regular student of mine said, oh, it was good. It was a good practice. And I said, well, could you describe it instead of telling me, you know, what, what is good to you? Because sometimes we, mm-hmm. we forget we're applying a judgment, but every, every meditation practice is good because you've done it. Essentially, whether you were distracted or not, doesn't necessarily mean that it was good or right. <laughs> or as opposed to bad. Yeah, as opposed to bad. <laughs> There's a continuum. Exactly. <laughs> mm. So you are very known in certain circles to be a teacher's teacher. Of course, you've explained, you've created your own school. 
you've got wonderful principles, but is this a moniker that you enjoy? And what does it mean to you to be a teacher's teacher? Well, it certainly was never intentional. I, I mean, it was not a goal. But what was interesting is that this is back in the 2000s, early 2000s, when I was still at Yoga Works. I think I had Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I think it was a 1045 class. And just what happened is all the teachers came. <laughs> and so who was in the room was some very experienced students and a ton of teachers, a, ton, a lot of the Yoga Works teachers, but even from other studios. It, so it was just, it became a thing that all these teachers were coming to Annie. And it was a little bit of a problem for That's me nice. because I didn't get paid for the teachers. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd have, you know, 75 people in the room and make hardly any money. Oh, <laughs> anyway, it's all good. So anyway, that's where that came from was that people saying, oh yeah, it's the teacher's class. Look who's here. And then obviously as I have led, gosh, so many teacher trainings over the years. Yeah, so from 03 through 2010, I was yoga works trainings. And then since 2010, I've been leading smart flow trainings. So yeah, it's, I've been doing this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. So I actually found you through my teacher who I trained with, Suzanne Faith. And, and I remember because, so I signed up with her, kind of like how you ended up. <laughs> with Matty, because she's the only person who offered a 200 hour teacher training that wasn't one month. It was two weeks in mm. the spring and two weeks in the early fall. And I couldn't take a month off work. So it was just what it was. And after we finished the first 100 hours, she said to everyone, she said, I'd like you to go. And for those of you who don't spend time looking at or trying other forms of yoga, Suzanne teaches Hatha Vinyasa. She said, I would like you to go and study. There's this website. It's called glow.com. <laughs> I'd like you to go and check out Annie Carpenter. And I'd like you to check out Kia Miller and Kundalini. And she named a few others. And I can't remember the name of the younger teacher. Uh, Marla. Exactly. And so I'd done a fair amount of other forms of yoga. But immediately when I started working with you on Glow, it felt like a really great moment because I had my BKS Iyengar manual on the one side. I had all of my props, which guys, if you're going to be working with Annie online, it's better if you have your props. <laughs> she likes to use them. Get your blocks, get your bolster, get a bunch of blankets. I mean, so it was, it was a really incredible discovery. And so I would like to ask you, how did you, how did you get started on Glow? You know, they had asked me early on when they first started and they were really, as far as I know, the, the first solid online studio. And at that time I said, no, I was frankly too busy. I was starting to travel a lot. And then later, actually I went to Derek, who is the, owner, founder. And when I was about to move here, so it's only been, I think that was 2014 when Sam and I were talking about moving out of LA. So it was me. And he said, oh yeah, come on, let's do this. So yeah. And, and part of that was because then at Glow, there was a big studio in Santa Monica and 
all the students could come in and take the class. You know, the older classes where you have the big groups of people in there. I know. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. And so it was a way for me to come back to LA, record some classes, but also see my students. And they got to do it for free, which was just amazing. Mm. A few years after that, this class is closed and it was just me in the studio. And now, of course, it's me at home, but the cats <laughs> do make the entrances occasionally. The cats <laughs> are very, very entertaining. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, but I love Glow and I feel like they really do a fabulous job. And there are many really good teachers on the platform. I love them. I actually love Kia Miller. Mm. She does some fabulous pranayama practices, I, I must say. When I am in need of <laughs> like really extra help, I definitely go in and follow her. Yeah. And T.S. Little, I discovered through that and lots of amazing teachers. So yeah. So Kia, I love, love, love too. And in fact, she did train with me back, way back. Oh, I'm, not, wow. I'm not obviously her Kundalini teacher. That was separate, but her Hatha and Vinyasa, she did with me and she did a, a mentorship with me. I'll never forget that group. There were some great people came out of that group. Kia, mm. Rock, Cahill. Gosh, I'm blanking. But anyway. I feel like there's a bunch of teachers that you guys all do something different, mm -hmm. but you're all very complimentary. And I feel like it's, it, congratulations to Glow People. <laughs> I, I'm still really excited every time that I take a class there. Awesome. Love but that. of course, I was very excited to join you online via Zoom. The pandemic is a global disaster, but having the opportunity for me from Geneva, Switzerland to dial into Oakland, California to do your 10 a.m. <laughs> classes or your 9 a.m. class on a Monday, Wednesday or Saturday was really exciting. So how do you feel about teaching via Zoom? <laughs> it's complicated. I, <laughs> I, I I, I too am delighted that I get to connect with you and other, I mean, you see in those classes, there's always a few people from Europe. Sometimes there's someone from the Philippines or New Zealand that, you know, God only knows what time it is for them or even LA, you know, or New York, you know, closer in. So that has been wonderful to be able to connect and, and have a, in a word, more global community every time I teach. That's fabulous. To not be in the room, to not be able to walk around and see you three-dimensionally, to feel your energy in the way I would if I were standing beside you, to listen to your breathing, to feel how the community is impacting each individual, because it's not always positive. You know, sometimes we need to create space or boundaries. Anyway, all, all of those things clearly are, are missing. <laughs> So, you know, there's the pluses and the minuses. I am grateful. And for now, I'm grateful it's continuing. And I think many people think it's not going to change, that that will somehow carry on. I will say as a teacher and, and teachers out there who are listening, it's kind of exhausting to do both. Try to be present with the folks in the room and the folks at home on the monitor. It's, it, it's a big job. Doing the hybrid sounds complicated because I have one of my favorite teachers in New York, Diana Relove. She's switched to doing either in person or on Zoom. And so she teaches on Zoom a bunch mm -hmm. of times a week, but she doesn't do the hybrid. And mm -hmm. I, I can see how it splits your own attention in a way. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. And so you travel quite a lot in order to deliver 
yoga teacher trainings, which is how we ended up meeting this year in, in April. Although, I mean, I had the pleasure of taking your workshop on Try Yoga on Zoom, a great workshop, the one that you did in March this year. It was on Keystone, the Keystones of the Body. I loved it. Yeah. Wow. That was exceptional. I've never done, <laughs> I've never done sun salutations the same way since then. <laughs> so how do you feel about the travel? <sighs> Mixed again. <laughs> mm. It is lovely to be in community in different areas and really sense the culture of the area in a big sense, but also the yoga culture of each area, because it is different town to town and in country to country. I do have increased guilt about the carbon emissions that the big flights are putting out in the world. And I'm trying to be more efficient with travel. I mean, I always was, but even more so about going somewhere and staying for three weeks or four even. Um, Like I will be in Europe in May this year and I'll do, looks like three or four different stops altogether before I come back home again. So those types of things. And I'm choosing not to do some trips that feel like maybe maybe that's not efficient for all, all that it would take in terms of me leaving home, but also the travel itself. And yeah, it's a it's a tough time, you know. On one level, I think, oh well, isn't it better for one person, me, to travel than to expect thirty, forty, fifty people to travel to me? Okay, that makes sense. So there's that. But still, when I get on the plane and I think about how much you know, filth (laughs) it's emitting. It's hard. I'm actually quite shocked at how many people I know of all ages in various countries don't seem to care. So, Mm. but I I hear you. One of the things on, in my experience of, of you through Zoom and in you in person that, that is matched is that you have an incredible kind of energy. And I I was writing this question before we talked today and I was thinking it felt it feels to me like you have this incredible power and you can dial up or down depending on what you want your students what you're inviting your students to do. And I was thinking it's a superpower. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking it's super Annie. And I would love for you to tell me, are you aware of the energy that you have? And and how do you tap into it? How do you de- develop it as a teacher and perhaps as a human? Well, first, I think I have a fair amount of, in a word, control over it these days. But I do think it's intuitive. I do think, I'll, let, me, let me also credit Martha. I think that that was it, it, not with these same words that we're using today, but I do think, and frankly, if you go orchestra, I went to a fabulous opera last week in, in San Francisco, just incredible and a great singer, a great cellist, all of them. It's to be able to choose when you're shouting, when you're just chatting, when you're whispering, when there's silence. You know, this is the stuff of a good experience, it, just like good lovemaking. You know, any good Mm. relational thing has to have this ebbing and flowing. And like surfers can ride a wave and no, no, that one's crazy or this one isn't big enough. It's it's that sort of surfing one's own energy and 
perhaps more importantly, surfing the room's energy um, so that uh, hopefully I have a fairly clear sense. Does the, does the room need me to give them a little juice or does the room need me to bring it back and invite them to be quieter, slower, less effortful, more returning to center, more internal interoception as opposed to action. And uh, I think whatever we do, if it is relational with one other person, a hundred other people, a million other people, to ride that energy and to sense it in a way that feels, that makes other people feel like they're understood, it's key. So still on that theme of energy, this goes back to something you said earlier and I'd be interested for you to tell me it sounds like teaching although it takes a lot out out of you also gives you a lot of energy as opposed to what you were doing earlier in your career when you were dancing and, and navigating that world of dance that was just depleting you yeah it is true and I dare say maybe I could have learned how to be a performer and have it feed me and not deplete me but I didn't and and I did find teaching, so that's yeah. my dharma. It's your calling. Yeah, it's it's definitely a calling, and and I feel like I am doing what I'm meant to be doing, and I have for many mm. years, and I feel lucky that way. I'm, I'm not torn about other things I should might do. I know I'm on my path, and I do think my path is you know basic teaching, but also helping other teachers to to find their authentic, hopefully true voice. Mm. Yeah. There's another link between your dance career, and you may correct me, <laughs> and and the way that you lead quite a few of the, of the practices that you do today. You seem to incorporate a lot of somatic movement. Could you tell me how that happened and perhaps explain to people who don't know what it is, what, what the benefits are? Somatic, I think many people call it somatic exploration. Um, it, it's, it's, there are a lot of different, which we call them, uh, forms of that these days. But I was very lucky. I think I told you I went off to San Francisco for college, and this is in the 70s. And the little tiny school that I went to, which no longer exists, was called Lone Mountain College. It's a fabulous little tiny school that had basically a dance department, a theater department, and a psychology department, and that was it. And in the 70s, a lot of liberal arts schools went down, including this one. But anyway, in the summers, and I couldn't go back and forth to East Coast every summer, so I stayed and, you know, <laughs> worked in a deli and worked as a waitress and all the things. Um, but anyway, Moshe Feldenkrais, who oh. was an Israeli somatic therapist, really, he came in the summers and offered these workshops. And one summer I was able to join, not for the whole thing, but for part of it. And it, boy, I just loved, loved, loved it. And so I have studied Feldenkrais over the years. Also, when I was in New York, I hooked up with an Alexander teacher, which is another form, really quite different, more maybe active than Feldenkrais. But I've always had these let me let me see if this makes sense. So whereas in yoga the attention is deepened by moving closer to a a known form and its actions and balances, somatic movement f focuses attention 
by not knowing where you're going. Yes, <laughs> which I think for the person who's doing it, um, it's a discovery process. I remember, yes, I think it was during the Tri Yoga workshop that you guided us to imagine that we were a baby and going through all of the stages of discovering the world. <laughs> and so there I was on my own, on my rug, <laughs> crawling and looking, creeping and creeping and, and crawling. And, and it was sucking and spinning. It was such an incredible experience. <laughs> and somehow you're right. First of all, huge recollection. This really made it into my memory circuits as a heightened experience. And I think it was making the point of the discovery. So how do you blend that in with the yoga? Well, my belief is that not often enough. <laughs> and, and for the most part, it I, occasionally I'll bring it into a class as sort of an opening exploration for whatever movement principle we're doing that day, especially with shoulder girdle, that, that can fit in nicely. You know, part of it is audience. It depends who's in the room. Are, are they ready to not be told exactly what to do? Step your right foot forward, turn your back heel down, you know. In workshops and in trainings when there's more time, and frankly, when I need the group to, to relax, to, you know, we can't push all day long. It's, and to go in and, and to be reminded that inquiry and self-inquiry ultimately is the point of yoga. While I think asana, which most people think of yoga is asana, whereas as we know, it's only a part of yoga. And again, beginners want to be told what to do, where to put their feet, you know, all the things. To shift that to what are you feeling? What is, where is the blockage? Where is the freedom? And what if you were to do the movement in a way that might feel, say, backwards? That's a very Feldenkrais thing to do. To, to turn the eyes in the opposite direction that they would naturally go. To, in, in a word, reset the nervous system by doing that. These are very, very healing things. And I don't think they present on, on first encounter as a big deal. And so I think it's not easy to trust them in the beginning. But I do think most people who've had that opportunity do go, oh, yeah, this is, oh, wait, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in, in that moment of aha, like you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, because I remember regularly you do that thing for the shoulder girdle and we do like a snow angel and then we do the, the head mm -hmm. turning and the, the eyes going in the other yeah. direction. Yes, 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 mm. yes. Mm. Yes. That's all Feldenkrais. Oh, That's where I stole so that. So much fun. Mm. But the other work, the movement work from infant, that comes from my study with Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen. Have you heard that name? No. She is a force. And she has books and people have written books about her. I don't think she's very good at slowing down and writing herself, kind of like me. Yeah, Bonnie Bain Bainbridge Cohen is an incredible. And I've done numerous workshops with her over the years. And uh, amazing. And she does therapy with infants mm. who've had difficult births and things. It's just amazing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I will definitely look her up. That's that's wonderful. Mm. So I'm glad that you talked about inquiry because I think it's by the third or fourth day in in that 50-hour training that I attended that I just realized how much you use questions 
in order to get people to do things. And of course, <laughs> so for the listeners who know this about me and the other ones, well, you'll, you'll find out. A year ago, I certified as a, as a coach with Martha Beck, who's an incredible, incredible coach. True coaching in the way that is described by the International Coaching Federation is really all about inquiry. You don't give advice whatsoever. It's just about asking the next right question so that the person in front of you that you're supporting can find the answer for, for themselves. And so that was, that was on my mat. And I thought, is Annie a coach? Because I realized that perhaps 50% of what you say in the class is question. Were you aware? Yeah. I mean, I, did I know that that's what coaches do? No, no but were you aware <laughs> that's what you were doing? Oh, it's so intentional. And I hope that it's more than 50%, actually. Probably. Yeah. I, I didn't count the cues, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> that would be interesting for me to take a class and go, oh, that was only 43%. You need to get up to 60. <laughs> it's absolutely intentional. And, and, and probably unconsciously, I know some of what you're talking about as a real coach, but certainly not in the way that you do. But what I do know is I am trying to empower the student. I am trying to, in a word, disempower the teacher because so often it's, you know, one or the other. As, as a teacher seems more powerful and more all-seeing and, and however students project us onto some pedestal, which we're, of course, always going to fall off of in a big thud, <laughs> you know, so that's scary too. Um, but I do believe as I can be clear and somehow fade into the background so that their experience is what matters, They're, they evolve their own sense of reality, inner reality, and thus they make choices not just in the moment in the, on the mat or in their meditation, but in their lives. It, it's a way of living, not driven from the outside, but driven from the inside. A hundred percent. It's interesting because not, what was it? Monday? Yesterday? I can't remember. I guided another meditation not long ago. And once in a while, I realized I'm, I'm not asking enough questions because in guiding meditation, you use a lot of passive language. So noting, noticing what you'd use for a Shavasana or Yoga Nidra. But there is real room for exploration. Can you sense this? So just know that you're influencing me. <laughs> but I'm trying to do it with, let's say, a different energy. Because sometimes when you ask questions, you deliver them with a lot of power, especially when you make us hold a pose for a long time. And so we'll be there in like a, not necessarily a challenging pose, but just there for a long time and you'd be there. Can you feel your big toe? Can you move the thigh back? And you ask question and question and question. And instead of getting tired, essentially, I'm consistently just going, can I? <laughs> and moving that, moving to your cue or moving to your question. It's really fun. That would be the point. Thank you for, for getting it. <laughs> I'm not sure everyone does. Yay. Sometimes I see these faces, get me out of this pose, Annie. <laughs> but, it's, uh, but it's funny because sometimes also as you grow in your, in your practice, some of the cues that you give me come naturally to me and others I've never thought of. And I think that was mm -hmm. why when you did this Keystone workshop, it was really interesting to focus so much on the feet, just an area of the mm -hmm. body that we put so little attention 
on. And yet they carry us literally wherever we go. And so I'm excited about the kind of teaching that you offer that I think bring us more self-knowledge that is useful in day-to-day life, honestly. Well, I, and maybe it's because I'm, you know, older now, but, uh, you know, the the crazy poses I used to do, you know, sticking my feet behind my head and balancing on one hand and all the things, which frankly are retired, and not all of them, but <laughs> some of those poses I've retired, that it doesn't interest me because it doesn't support my life. And a lot of poses do support our lives, you know, and all the standing poses for the reasons you just mentioned and more. Yeah, but as time goes on, we see, hopefully, it's not about the poses. (laughs) It's not about the poses. The poses, you know, support our lives clearly like feet do. But also, and that's why I really love to kind of move through the body in an organic way. Can you ground the inner edge of the big toe as you lift the arch? Can you lift that inner kneecap as you soften the groin back? So it has a clear organic line through the body. But also, I think bigger picture is, can we move back and forth from micro to macro and micro to macro? And, And that sense of, the, the tiniest, tiniest, most intimate way of paying attention to the largest way, but also maybe even bigger picture. And if you, if you can get behind this is I am an essential spark of life, of energy. And I, and yet I am just part of the whole. And to me, all of those things are connected. And maybe it's just me being a hopeful teacher. I, I am hopeful. <laughs> I'm glad you are. And thank you for making that beautiful segue because I wanted to talk about yoga philosophy. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> actually, I heard you talk on another podcast. Actually, it was the Glow podcast that you recorded, I think, a year ago. It was really lovely. You talked about the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali and you talked a little bit about the cities, the, uh, the superpowers, mm. the third part of the Yoga Sutras that Frankly, most teachers just gloss over and say, yeah, that's just like weird stuff. (laughs) But it's really fun. I heard your take on it. Would you offer us a glimpse of what you think that means or they mean? So the cities are are actually really interesting. It's early on in the third chapter, third pada, as we say, in, in Patanjali Sutras. And frankly, my feeling is, and I think most people would agree, is that there are these incredible, what might be called magical um, powers, like being able to move through time and space, being able to talk to animals, knowing exactly and how you're going to die. So I think what you're hearing here is moving beyond time and space, which is so appealing, I think, to many of us. And maybe, again, that's a certain kind of geeky mind or a certain time in one's life. But let me just preface it all by saying in the sutras, these are described after this whole line of them as Uh distractions, as obstacles. And I think that's really important because we get caught up in trying to be good at something or trying to understand something in a way that no one else does or... Any time we attach super to something, then we're in judgment or in comparison, competitive kind of mode. So that's one side of it. But the other side, which is even more interesting, which I think is super fun, is the idea of time and space as a human construct that helps us 
move through the world as a, as a society, as a culture. And in the same way that we might look at this idea of the Big Bang, of life starting from, well, we're not quite sure, but it was almost nothing, and then boom, and then everything has evolved out from that moment. The One of the most trusted, uh, if you will, creation theories coming out of the Hindu religion from, say, 4,000 years ago, more or less, is very similar to that, where it, there was nothing and then there was desire. And from desire, Shiva mm. and Shakti, the two poles of energy were created, moved away from one another, and that all expressions of life are, in a word, them trying to yeah. get back together. <laughs> I think as we embrace that as a theory, if you come, if you move in the opposite direction from that theory, if you try to get back to what we might call the beginning, then time and space are, are again, merely constructs, don't serve. And the idea of being able to sit together and have a cup of tea, Anne, whether you're in Geneva and I'm in Oakland, <laughs> you know, we think we need Zoom, but we probably don't, <laughs> right? And, and, and the same with going to sleep, but it's, you know, all the things. And I don't think humans can live beyond time and space right now. And I don't think all of the, uh, well, let's look at the clashes if we want to stay with Patanjali's work, all the obstacles that we work through in practice, in particular that last one, that abhini vesha, which is the fear of dying or the clinging to life, which I think fits well into this story. I don't think any of us, except perhaps very close to the last, whether we have two months of knowing when we're going to die, more or less, or the moment of passing. And especially, I think, if you have children, you know, that wanting for their lives to continue, I, I think that it's near impossible for most of us to live in that sort of timeless, spaceless, category-less way of, of life, where whether I'm alive or whether I'm dead, no, even though I know that life itself continues, I don't know that we can live without some fear and some longing for it to continue, our mm. relationships, our, our dreams. Yeah. Um, I think it's a good thing, a good meditation for us regularly mm. to meditate on that last breath, but certainly not easy. And in a word, I'm not sure it's even possible to live mm. that way. For any length of time. I would venture that also that fear is good because it perhaps it helps us feel attached to life or we notice the small moments because we know we're going to lose it one day. I wouldn't want to live forever. That would be awfully boring. And of course, I don't feel like dying tomorrow. <laughs> but I mean, my father died at 93 and I swear he wow. was like way ready. But having seen that it's okay that we go someday. I'm with you hundred yeah. <laughs> percent. And in fact, when I read the Greek myths, you know, about the Titans oh, yeah. and, the, and the gods who live forever, they're all, they all get bored and then violence happens. Yeah. I mean, I've, <laughs> <laughs> it's what you should say that I personally feel very strongly like a Kashmir Shaivite. So I do study the Shiva and Shakti and the Spanda and stuff like that. It feels very right in my life. <laughs> but also I love reading the God stories because there's so much drama. So 
Mm. One of the one of the things that I want to stress to the people who are listening to us, perhaps some of those who are not necessarily keen on on trying yoga, but who may be interested in meditation, is that you are an exceptional meditation teacher as well. And there are plenty of wonderful practices that you've recorded on Glow. And I wanted to know, or perhaps for you to tell us, because you and I have discussed this before, how meditation made its way into your life. And and that's it. <laughs> okay. You know, I think I resisted it forever until I realized all the ways that I was already doing it. <laughs> and by that, I mean, perhaps just moments, even in an asana practice, moments in a deep conversation with someone I loved and trusted, certainly moments walking alone in nature. Um, and then over the years, when I, when I fell in love with pranayama, with the breathing practices, that really was, in terms of my formal daily meditation practice, that was my, my doorway in, the gateway really for me, because it was once I could sit still and still have something to focus my mind on, <laughs> I have a very fast mind, that allowed me to stay with in ever more subtle things and even more subtle things. And then that moment of between the breaths, which I was able through practice to extend, not on purpose, but because I could, because it was available. And there'd be that moment where I was not doing, not because I was trying not to do, but just because I was not doing. And I realized, oh, wow. And that lovely sense of, peace with presence, as opposed to presence that typically my mind would go, okay, so great. What would she do? We're all focused. <laughs> that's, a, that's what my mind feels like very often. It's like, oh, you've cleared your mind. Now let's do this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank oh, yeah. you for getting that. And <laughs> yeah, it's really embarrassing. I feel like that's when my um, to-do list goes. But you know what that reminds me of is, and, and I've heard people say this since I was a, a young dance teacher, is there the people who can teach anything well are often the people who had to struggle a little bit to get there, to understand it. Like I remember there was two fabulous ground dancers. They didn't have to teach because they were constantly performing and making a better salary than I ever did. But anyway, they weren't great teachers because everything came so easily and simply. They didn't know how to break it down. They didn't know how to set up the sequence so that you inevitably came to that movement or that idea or that feeling or in, in yoga asana. And even though I was always a very flexible person, what I had to learn was how to stabilize and how to create active stillness. That's a very different thing for, you know, the stiff people need to move in the, in the direction on their continuum towards motion. But many people who are drawn to mm -hmm. yoga asana have too much movement in their bodies. And to make the movement away from yeah. flexibility and towards stability and to have that be as interesting, to make it interesting for a flexi person, that ain't easy. 
because <laughs> I, I just wanted to go further. Me all too. The time. I was like, okay, let's bend <laughs> me more. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And more sensation. Yay. <laughs> right. And then what? Um, it's not that much fun. You can't breathe very well anyway. Yeah. So that movement towards the stillness and that movement towards being comfortable when there's not the next thing that we're trying to create or do or become in any way. Mm. And, and there's joy in that. There's joy mm. in that. I feel like this speaks to what I love about yoga is that it, it helps balance out the things we have too much of versus what we have too little of with a good teacher. Mm-hmm. But so I have a really silly question. Uh-oh. There's a lot of people near me, not necessarily close friends, who struggle in their body. They're not old, but they've got back pain or knee problems or whatever. And yet they haven't tried yoga. Maybe it's the yoga culture in Europe is definitely way behind compared to the US and compared to, I would say, Australia as well. But so <laughs> if you were to pitch it to someone, Silly pitch, right? It doesn't have to be serious. What would you say to convince someone to give it a try? Because it's going to help you like with life. Okay. I, so yeah. let, me, let me put that aside and hopefully get back to it. But, but I think the thing is, if there isn't a culture of, I'm just going to call it beginner yoga, which it's, you know, not, that's not exactly the right name accessible yoga. And, and part of it is finding the right name for it. Gentle yoga. That sounds wimpy. Oh, that's such uh, yeah. a good point. And so yeah, that's the one piece, uh, you know, we can say introduction to yoga, but that just means, okay, yeah. we're going to give you a little bit, but you really can't do it yet. Or maybe you never will. So I, I think that's part of it is, is what do we call it? How do we bring it in? And can we train teachers who can make yoga accessible for those people. Because frankly, true beginners, especially if they're on the stiffer side or very weak for all the reasons that people are weak, are not going to do well in any of the classes that I teach regularly. They might be okay in that Sunday morning class, which is pretty mixed level. And it's not easy to teach that class. That takes way more skill. I remember you, you taught us an amazing beginner yoga hour long and it was wonderful but yes it's a whole different skill set it's actually a whole different vocabulary I'm glad you mentioned that because I remember when I was in New York I used to go to Yoga Vida all the time because it was close to my house and they had a beginner yoga and even though I wasn't a beginner occasionally I did dip in the class and I really enjoyed it sometimes Mm. a return to basics is just really lovely Mm. yeah so I wonder if maybe the beginning, quote unquote, classes should look at a name change, like whether it's functional movement or live well in your body, or I don't know, we, we could talk about this for hours, but maybe that's part of it because I do think for better and, and worse, people think of yoga as asana and people sticking their feet behind their head and touching the floor and when they're standing on their heads, you know. <laughs> All the things that many people actually will never and probably should never even try. It's, it's not for everyone. That yeah, type yeah, of yeah, yoga. for sure. Yeah. Mm. That's the other part about Zoom. Sorry, I just threw that in. Oh, yeah. Because I can't really see what people are doing. And mm-hmm. it's really hard for me to set boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway. Mm. 
Very good point. Thank you. I do not need you to answer the pitch question, but I'm delighted I asked it because it makes sense. We need more beginner yoga classes and they should be called something else. Yeah, I think that's the key. Now, switching to a very different topic, you have a passion outside of yoga <laughs> that <laughs> that is very inspiring, actually, as I hear you talk about it. You are a very, very passionate bird watcher, birder. Yeah. Can you yeah. tell us about it? <laughs> well, I think part of it is it just gets me outside, although I do have a feeder on our deck and I can sit and watch, you know, on any given day, I'd say in our little tiny backyard in Oakland, which is pretty citified, pretty urban, I get 12 to 15 different species to my little tiny backyard. Now, part of that is because I've taken away all the non-natives, got rid of the lawn, have only native plants, lots of berries that birds can eat. I leave the leaves when they fall because that's where the grubs and the worms are. You know, all, I've done all, no fertilizer all the things. But anyway, birds remind me of me. You know, they're quick, they're light, they're lively. <laughs> they're too skinny. They have hollow bones. <laughs> but I, I was very lucky as a teenager. I, I went to my high school was a, an alternative high school, one of the first of its kind, certainly in Virginia. And so for our school topics, we could choose, like for science, we had this amazing science teacher, George Clark. And we would hike the Appalachian Trail for PE, and we would identify flora and fauna for science, for botany, right? And, and he was a birder. And so one course, one month-long thing, we had to identify a certain number of birds, and he took us uh, kayaking in our little city park. It was a big city park and a big lake. And if you go way in the back where the lake becomes marsh, back to probably how it had been for centuries, we were looking for several birds, including kingfisher. There was an eagle's nest back there, but there was a prothonotary warbler. Prothonotary warbler. What is that? <laughs> well, I'm so warblers look are up. little... Yeah, please do. They're, the warblers are small birds. And remember, man, many birds, not all, the girls are these drab brown to keep them safe. And the boys are these bright, flirty, you know, it's like the <laughs> fancy sports car. <laughs> and the prothonotary warblers are this brilliant yellow. It's got just a tiny bit of orange in it. So it's a really warm, bright yellow color. And they have this beautiful, simple song, just four whistles. Like that. So you usually hear it before you see it. And they're definitely in decline now, like so many other birds. But anyway, I, I saw this, I think I was 16 or seven, maybe 17 years old. And all bird, most birders have what we call the spark bird, kind of like the spark shavasana. <laughs> right? Um, and you see it and it changes your life. And it's like, wow, I want to see that bird again. I, I don't know. I can't explain it, but it, it changes you. And even though for many years when I lived in New York City and even L.A., you know, New York, you had a lot of pigeons. L.A. had a lot of seagulls. Um, <laughs> you know. And here there are more, there is more diversity of birds. And, and I do think people are starting to shift and look after the land a tiny bit better so that some birds are coming back. So all of that, it, and it reminds me how uh, the smallest 
brightest thing can be so inspiring, you know? It doesn't have to be, it sometimes, we call them LBJs, little brown jobs. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the little small sparrows that are, that so are always around. Yeah, They're really fun to watch. The quality Definitely. of attention, it really, for me, is meditative and calming and I get out of my stuff. It's, it's, if you're looking for a hobby, yogis, try birding. Mm. I wonder how you felt the first time that you got to Sydney. So one of the things that I've noticed, I'm not a birder yet. yet. I do like them, but I, I'm very attuned to sound. And there's one thing more than smell for sure is how much I can, I can tell you where I am depending on the kind of bird song that I hear. And the first time I was in, in the Southern Hemisphere, the first time I was in, in Bondi in Sydney, or the first time I went to Thailand, oh man, every time in order to get my, myself back there, the first thing that comes is, is actually the sounds, not necessarily the images. So yeah, what was it like for you the first time that you went oh, to crazy, an exotic country? Pretty good. And especially if you can get out deeper into nature, which I can't always when I'm teaching, but I went to the, a very tiny bit of rainforest that's left in, I'm talking about the coast of Australia. It's just north of Byron Bay, which is up the coast a bit from Sydney. Yeah. And I actually hired a, a, a bird guide and he took me deep in, into this small rainforest. And many of the birds of the rainforest, you, you really don't get to see, but there's a, a whip bird and I can't do that one. <laughs> it is so loud. And usually the bird is quite a distance Anyway, so many birds I'd never, ever heard because they don't, all their creatures are different from anywhere else. So it's just exactly. shocking. Yeah, it, the mm -hmm. soundscape. But I, I just have to remark, Anne, that you do podcasts, which are all about yeah. sound. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I, and I was a singer before and that. That's so. right. That's why you have such a beautiful voice. So it's, it, it's no surprise to me. And by the way, if you can mm. identify your area by listening, you're a birder. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's official. Yeah, I get that. I, <laughs> mm. it's, it's interesting because I had been following you for a couple of years. By the time we got to the first lockdown and I was in a small apartment in Geneva, just, a, I mean, I was so lucky because it was tiny, but across from me was the park. Mm. And Geneva in March can be very dreary. And of course, there are no leaves on most trees. I mean, some, we had some pines and further into the park and I had very loud neighbors, mm. crows. Ah. Oh my God. <laughs> so many, so many crows. <laughs> you have no idea. I mean, the racket that was going on outside my window was crazy. And so I did start bird watching during that period because I would sit by my window and journal every morning with my coffee. I always like to be by window. And the only thing that I get to see really is I was on the fourth floor. My locals mm. were my birds. Because you were living alone. We've moved. Yeah, I was living alone. Yeah. And it's funny because I live in a different neighborhood now. So I get only some crows, but now I feel like they're kind of like extended family. I, I have some affinity to them and having they do observed stay them for so in long. large flocks. They call them murders. You know yeah. that, right? A flock of I did crows not are know that. Murder. 
Uh, that's, it sounds exactly, exactly. what's going on. And they fight a lot, by the way. Yeah, and you know, they're, <laughs> of all funny. the birds, they're incredibly intelligent. The, uh, the Corvid family, which is the jays and the magpies and the crows, the ravens, they are crazy smart. So, of course, you love them. <laughs> yes, and I think that there's also a challenge there because crow pose is not something that comes easily <laughs> to me. So there's, I was very aware that there was a dichotomy in that sort of budding relationship. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> no. So of course the, the podcast is at the crossroads between business. So what we do and, and mindfulness, <laughs> what I care about. <laughs> and I would like for you to share with us, if you don't mind, what's your ritual? What do you do every day that supports you or keeps you grounded and balanced Whatever it may be. You know, I think I might be surprising or frankly surprising to me these days is that when I was younger and I had a really, really strong asana practice and I would, in the mornings would be my, what I call the quiet practices, which is I almost always start with pranayama and then I sit. And sometimes that's 15 minutes and sometimes it's 30 minutes. That's it. And then later in the day, I do my asana practice and the asana practice used to be this one big thing that was an hour and a half, sometimes two. And it's not like that anymore. And, and I think it's just age. And in the mornings I get up and I have this really simple, I have the rope swall, the Iyengar rope swall in, in my little homeroom here. And I do a series of stretches and shoulder stabilizers and, you know, on that. And it might just be 10 minutes. Then I do the emailing and all that stuff. And then I'll sit. Usually in the morning, I'll sit and breathe and, and do that. And then later I'll do a practice. And then later I'll do a long walk outside just to get outside. And then I come home and after the walk, I have 15, 20 minute hip and calf release <laughs> series of, it's not really yin because I need to stabilize all the time. Uh, so it's this thing through the day. And the lesson is, the, the meta message here is, my yoga practice fits into my life in order to support my life. And I think when I was a younger yogi and I was establishing myself, my self-identity as a yogi and as a yoga teacher, it was more formal. And this is the meditation practice. And this is the asana practice. And, you know, separate and not integrated. And, and I didn't even add the days that I get to go out birding, which to me, at, when I finish, I feel like I've just had a meditation practice. Which I'm pretty sure yeah. you have had by that point, because they, depending on the intention and the focus, the concentration that we bring to the experiences we have, it is, you know, it there's a new book mindfulness. Out that I just, I haven't read the book yet. I can't remember the author, sorry, but it's about, she calls it slow birding. And it's the idea that mm. many birders today are, they keep a life list and they try to build more and more and more and more and more and more birds, you know, on that list, hundreds and hundreds of birds. And they try to get so many in each year and just all this stuff. And that to me is not interesting and actually takes me away from my enjoyment of watching the birds again the little brown jobs they have really interesting and odd behaviors and it, oftentimes i can tell them apart 
We have a, a pair of scrub jays and a pair of stellar jays that come because we put out peanuts in the morning and they come. And we know, oh, that's the one that always tries to get two in his beak. <laughs> and that's the one that goes back and forth and back and forth. And, and that's the one that fights. And that's the one that screams and yells. And, you know, and you ju- you're just with them. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> mm. But I don't that's put hilarious. them on my list. And I don't, are you with me? I'm not trying to get yeah. anywhere with it. I just want to be mm. out and with the birds. Yeah, but hold on a second. How do the cats feel about oh, that? Well, one cat sleeps through it, Jojo, because oh. she sleeps <laughs> in in the morning because she's up all night bothering us. But Hazel gets up with us and she sits at her little cat perch <laughs> and she scratches the window and the birds don't care. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah, my puppy oh. loves birds. AKA, he wants to jump on them. And every time he sees one, walking by the lake is hilarious because it's like the most entertainment he's ever seen in his life. He saw swans last week oh. and it was like, Ugh. he was very scared of them. And they really were trying to scare him as well. <laughs> highly entertaining. Uh, ge- goose, geese and um, swans can be mean. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I lived in London over the canal mm. and we had, we had wild geese and also, damn, they make a lot of noise <laughs> in the middle of the night. I want to add. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know if it was mating season, but it was, it was very loud. I just realized there was one question I forgot before. So at the end of our 50 hour communication mm-hmm. teacher training, you prepared three questions for us. And the last one was really interesting and and really deep. And I want to add this to our list. But I realized in listening to another podcast interview that this was also a question that you were asking yourself, not just asking us. And the question was, who am I? So I would like to ask you the same question. (laughs) Who is Annie? It was so, as you know, because you have thought about this, Anne, (laughs) that can be answered at so many levels. And I think as we're younger and we're establishing ourselves, in yoga, we talk about the ashrams, which are periods of life, the stages of life. And I'm approaching, you know, the, the, the last stage here. It is the stage where the other definitions, you know, where I live, what I do, who my family is, how I identify, all those things, while essential and important, and I continue to live that, is doesn't matter as much. And I think that is the trajectory that all yoga practice is meant to take us, is who am I? And yes, we find our dharma, what we should be doing with our lives, how we should be sharing our lives, all of those things. But ultimately, and I try to ask myself this question at least once a day, who am I is, is the question that takes us past the misunderstanding, the misapprehension, the, the myth of how and why we identify with all things phenomenological, rather than identifying with things that we can, in, in good moments of the day, know and identify with as eternal. And the good meditations... I think you know this, Anne, take us to at least have brief moments, brief glimpses of that. But in the good times, on the good days, 
I do know that I am an eternal, energetic spark, spirit, soul. You know, my names for it have changed and continue to change over the years. But I do know that. And that while I identify with this body and the things this body has done and hopefully will continue to do for a bit longer, I do know that Annie Carpenter... (laughs) is um, this, this little energetic pulse, this little light that animates this vehicle that I call Annie. And while, you know, that leads us back to Abhinivesha, yes, this vehicle will be finished at some point, and to your point, probably sooner than I expected, and probably thankfully sooner than I expected, because who wants to suffer? And that light, that energy pulse will find its way and continue, whether that's an, you know, just something pulsing out in the ether or being living in a vehicle of another sort, who knows? And, and frankly, who cares? Um, so so mm. I, I do invite myself to remember the, and to identify with that eternal bit that is very small. <laughs> And it does help me get through all the changes that seem swifter these days and, and appreciate the changes and welcome the changes, uh, knowing that there is some, some sense of constancy. Thank you very much. What is a quote that you either love or live by? Well, I, you know I was going to say hope is the thing with feathers, I, I presume. <laughs> That's the um, Emily Dickinson. Mm. But you know what? I think because I have thought so much about teaching and inspiration and it, both seeking new learnings uh, for myself, but also being a, a teacher, I have two that, that really I, I try to live by in my dharma, if you will. And one is Noam Chomsky, you probably know. And his, this one, there are many of his that are really inspiring. He says, if you're teaching today what you were teaching five years ago, either your field is dead or you are. <laughs> I love it. Oh, my God. Oh, that's exceptional. But, you know, it's, don't sit on your laurels. I mean, for all the reasons, you know. But in the moments where we feel accomplished and we have some sense of success in the sense that we feel like we're reaching students or students are showing up, I don't want to be stuck and have to teach the same old, same old. And I have known teachers over the years who've who've literally come to me and said, Annie, you seem to keep evolving. And I feel like I have this great success and I feel like my students want the same thing and I feel like I can't change. And what I know and hopefully live by is that I can only teach what I'm living and my practice has evolved and I don't teach Ashtanga anymore, even though I have great respect for it. It, I feel like it's for younger people. I don't teach Iyengar strictly, even though I studied that fairly, you know, fairly married to it for a number of years. Anyway, my point is that I want to keep learning and I want to keep understanding and and part of it is what suits the physical body I'm in, but also I need philosophy. I need to cultivate meaning. 
And maybe because the world is a little scary right now and I feel like people don't care and there's, you know, greed and all that. And I need to balance that with a sense of, of hope and, and meaning and joy. So, there, so there's that side of things. But also I, I've learned more about the body and how it ages and, you know, pre-menopause is different from post-menopause and you know, all those things. So if I'm not continuing to learn and, you know, if I am bored, then you're going to be bored, <laughs> right? So bottom line. Oh, that's such a good point. Oh, wow. Yeah, of course. I mean, that would yeah. be true for me as well. Well, that's why we get along. <laughs> mm. And then a last one, and this is from Albert Einstein, and he has so many good quotes. He says, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. That's right. just me clapping in the background. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, and, and that's enough said. He said it. It's, you know, if it's not simple to me, then I, it's, I'm not ready to teach it. Mm. Amen. <laughs> so what is a word that you would say is not necessarily just a favorite word, but one that you could theoretically tattoo on yourself or live with? Or live by. Oh, gee, you know, a million words came to my mind and I hadn't thought about this as a, you know, one word thing. But how about this? Molt. Uh, please explain. <laughs> <laughs> so birds molt at least three times and some birds molt four times a, a year, which means they literally lose all their feathers and grow a whole new set. And they do that, of course, you know, depends upon are you male or female, are you courting, all the things. But in a word, it's the willingness to let go of all that you seem to be and become something entirely new and do the work that that requires. It takes a lot of energy to, to mm -hmm. grow a whole new set of feathers for that tiny little guy. That's amazing. I had no idea. I yeah. don't feel like I knew this. <laughs> But it's beautiful because I've often related to the, I want to say the same process that happens in snakes when they yes. shed their old skin, which I think is remarkable. And I think that to your point about the different ashrams and the stages in life, sometimes we need to let go of who we were because we're entering we need to different retire stages. It. Retire it. And, <laughs> and it makes us feel very vulnerable, naked and tender. And that's what they say about the birds is, is when they're molting, you know, if there were a freeze that came through, they'd be way more vulnerable to the cold. And, you know, feathers are all kinds of protection and they don't fly as well until all the feathers have come through fully. So, yeah, it's a vulnerable time, just like with the snakes and just like with us when we're, when we're going through a change. Mm, thank you so Malt. much. Malt. What song oh best represents you? Ah, you know, I love, <laughs> you might be surprised by this, but I love gospel and soul. Not, not necessarily the blues, but, you know, in that direction. The things I listen to over and over again are people like the Stapleton Singers, which is a, a great gospel group. And Oddly enough, I'm not thinking of a particular song right now, but let me say they're songs of praises. And they generally have a seeking or you know, the, the gospel, they, it's all about forgive me, mm -hmm. I have sinned. 
Mm. But I'm staying with it. I don't I can't, funny, I can't think of a song. I also love Van Morrison, mm. mind you. Okay. <laughs> you can always send me the song after when it comes to you, because I know it's a very tough question. But let me know when you find one that you feel would fit the bill, because I've put together a playlist, which is incredibly eclectic for every guest of the podcast I who will. answered the it question. Even be it's Martin really fun. Gay. Okay, I will do that. <laughs> ah, interesting. Yeah, because my mine is Marvin <gasps> Gaye. Actually. Which one? <laughs> It's Ain't No Mountain Hi, no. with Tammy Terrell. I love that. Yeah. Okay, girl. Yeah. Another way we connect. Yeah. Well, actually, next question. What does connection you know, again, mean to you? If we sense that the truest part of ourselves is that energetic pulse, I do think that their energetic pulses, you know, mine and yours, for example, that, that tune easily. And that doesn't mean we become the same but that we resonate, can resonate together in the same way. You know, you might be a C major and I'm a G major, but it works. So, th- so there's that piece. And I think connection is easier when we know what our pulse is. Oh. When, when we're young, we try to have these deep relationships and, and maybe they're good and fun and pleasant and you know, all of that. And maybe we even grow in them. But I think that the type of relationship we're capable of having later when we recognize that pulse and what supports that pulse and helps us know it better and be seen and see another's is very different. Thank you very much. What is a secret superpower that you have? So none of the ones that I've listed already. Because obviously they're not secret. <laughs> oh, you know, it's not that secret. I, I'm a pretty good, I make food well. <laughs> I know nice. it's weird because I'm so damn skinny. I, I like to make food. I love, you know, really fresh, local, organic. It's, simp- it's not fancy food. But I, I do almost all the cooking for us. And, and I enjoy that. Sometimes I get bored and I have to get reinvigorated. I read recipes. I get a couple of blogs. Yeah, I, I, oh, love, I love food. I love fresh, organic food. Yeah, that's a secret. Mm. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. What is a favorite book that you could I'm share with us? I'm looking at my, the bedside table that has stacks, you know, of books uh-huh. that maybe I haven't finished, <laughs> but that are go back Don't to. Don't know what you mean. <laughs> I can't see, but I can imagine. Oh, you know which one I've been enjoying and still haven't finished is, oh gosh, I can't pronounce his name. Edward Yong, I think is his, is his last name. I think that's his name. It's called An Immense World. Have you read it? Oh, no, but I've heard about it. Yeah, I think it's on some bestseller lists this year. It's a, a newish yeah. book. This guy, he's a scientist and a writer, incredible writer. And each chapter is a different animal or animal group. And he dives deep into the way their senses create their world. And of course, his intention is that we recognize how defined and thus small our world is, because we can only hear in this range and we can, our eyes are forward, like some animals, their eyes are on the side. So we're always walking forward into our world rather than living in the world. Mosquitoes 
can taste with their feet. They have, if, as it were, tongues when they land on us. Oh, I heard that before. That's crazy. There are all kinds of interesting superpowers to us that define and create their worlds, and they're vastly different. And of course, we are so human-centric. And of course, that's one of my goals in life is to be less that. And we can't know their worlds without someone doing all this research and trying to describe it to us. So it's just fascinating. And it is the kind of book that you can read a chapter and think about it for a week or two and then go back. I think you'll love it. An immense world. It sounds absolutely incredible. Thank you so much. (laughs) I will definitely buy it. Where is somewhere you visited that you felt really had an impact on who you are today? Oh, so many, because, you know, I, I traveled as a dancer and, uh, and then now again as a, as a yoga teacher. You know what popped into my head is when I was 17 and I went to New York the first time to do what then was called the June course at the Martha Graham School. And I had only mostly been in this relatively small town. And my sister accompanied me. I think we took the train up and spent one night there just to make sure, you know, because I, I was a kid. Anyway, we went down to the Lower East Side to have Indian food. There's a whole section, as you re- may remember. And, uh, oh gosh, is it is it St. Mark's? Is, is that the one that's downtown on First Avenue, I think? I think so, yeah. I love that place. I yeah, love with that place. the stairs. Mm. Anyway, so yeah. after dinner, we walked out, went down and... I guess we're getting a cab to go back. I was staying on the upper sort of middle east side. Anyway, I remember while we were waiting for the cab, looking out at the steps in front of this cathedral and seeing numerous homeless people. And I had never seen that before. And I remember asking, what, what's going on over here? She says, oh, those are the homeless, you know, as if to say, don't look over there or don't, that's not our concern. And I don't know if, I wonder if she even would remember this. I'll ask her. We went back to this little hotel where we were staying at, and I was sick to my stomach. Literally sick. And I remember trying to push that away, that feeling, and where the Graham School, there were less homeless, at least at that time. But now I... In a word, I try to remember it, to, to remember the privilege I have. And it's not that I'm a terribly wealthy person or anything like that, but I have virtually every privilege I've ever imagined. Anything I thought I really wanted, for the most part, I've been able to at least try and not felt the kind of resistance that I would say many, many people do. And so, uh, you know, I'm sorry it's not a positive, inspiring memory, but it, it has been, and it has come back more easily to me in the last 15, 20 years. I think I'm able to have more empathy, maybe because I'm more comfortable in my skin. But yeah, I think in the same way we're human-centric, we're also a type of human-centric Uh, many of us, most of us perhaps, and open up to that and to try to live in ways that 
in, in some way diminish it or, or help it is, uh, is certainly a goal. Thank you. I'm really glad that you shared that story. And now for my last and always favorite question, what brings you happiness? <laughs> so many things. Uh, well, to go back, good mm-hmm. food. Good food makes me happy. It's certainly birding. What One of the highlight experiences <laughs> for me, and this is hard to feel over Zoom to get back to that question, is when I see a student make a self-discovery. Oh. It is... And I'm, I don't take ownership because I, you know, because uh-uh, a lot of them don't get self-discovery or certainly not every day. But when I see someone have that aha moment, whether it's understanding something in their body or here's my favorite one is when I, when I see them recognize that they're judging and over pushing themselves and they pause and that that's almost that sort of giggly acceptance of why am I giving myself such a hard time? <laughs> you know, There is such joy in, in watching people light up and get closer to who they really are. That's nothing like it. Yay. <laughs> Thank you so much. Mm. This has been a, a really wonderful conversation. I'm so glad that we could have this time together and that you would indulge me in answering all of my questions. <laughs> I could stay on the line for another couple of hours, but I think it's it's been a while. Let's release you back to Sam and the cats. Can I just ask you, you said that you're going to be traveling a little bit next year. When and where can people expect to find you in person? If they'd like to connect. Thank you, Anne. I will be in LA for one weekend in January doing a couple workshops. I'm coming to you, to Europe in May. And I'll be in Munich and Vienna. The festival in the Austrian Alps, I think it's called Galstein. More Mm -hmm. more information on that. And I'll be back in Australia next November. And that'll be Melbourne and Sydney and maybe Byron. I haven't decided about that one yet. So, Ooh. so those are the big ones. Ooh, I happily travel there to find you. <laughs> oh, come come to Australia. Been a while since I've been to, to Australia. So I will put links to everything. The smart flow, glow, etc. For anybody who wants to to get in touch, follow you, they'll have all of the access. Thanks again. Have a beautiful, beautiful rest of the day and weekend. Thank you, Anne. It's been such a pleasure. So, friends and listeners, thanks again for joining me today. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice. If you'd like to connect, you can get in touch with me at Anne V on Twitter, Anne Mulethaler on LinkedIn, or on Instagram at underscore out of the clouds, where I also share daily musings about mindfulness. You can also find all of the episodes of the podcast and much more on my website, annevmulethaler.com. If you don't know how to spell it, it's also going to be in the show notes. If you would like to get regular news directly delivered to your inbox, I invite you to sign up to my monthly newsletter. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to Out of the Clouds. I hope that you will join me again next time. And until then, be well, be safe and take care. <laughs>